At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Chasing Tales Outdoor Podcast, where when you can't be in the outdoors, we bring it to you. Welcome back to another episode of the Chase the Tales Outdoor Podcast. My name is Walt, his name is Chase, and every week, almost without fail, we bring you outdoor content with one simple goal, to inspire you to get outside and chase your passions, or maybe even try something new. That, that's our only goal here. We have real modest expectations, and thus far, uh, we, we seem to, to be doing so, and we're glad that you're here for another episode uh, we're, we're going to be talking deer hunting. We're going to give you a yakking for bass update. So uh, if you want to get to the straight to the deer content, you don't want the yakking for bass update. Uh, you probably want to fast forward about 10 minutes. That's about how long our intros go. Uh, but uh, we're not going to go ad nauseum about the yakking thing. We're just going to kind of update everybody because there's still time to get in, win prizes, and have a good time doing it. But uh, before we get to that, Chase, man, I, I had the, the pleasure of getting to see you here recently, man. And I got to say, dude, you're looking good, refreshed, and all is well now that school's behind you. Ah, yeah, I was refreshed then, but uh, I mean, I'm paying for it today. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was good, man. I met old Andy Thompson uh, at one of the uh, local lakes. (laughs) Yep. And he brought me uh, my deer head. He's he's the one that uh, is was working on the my deer for me. So we made like plans of like, hey, let's get together and uh, fish, and I'll pick up the deer head. Uh, Did a phenomenal job on my deer. I uh, couldn't ask for uh, any better on that, and he put a whooping on me uh, out on the water with uh, <laughs> catching all the fish that he caught uh, on one of his uh, honey holes, but I, I was able to put some uh, fish on the board. Uh, hopefully, I get rid of both of those fish in a perfect world, but uh, one of them I don't think I'll be getting rid of. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a pretty good fish, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was a good time, man, and you you went out there only really we're only out there for a couple of hours and you got to upgrade yourself so it was well worth the trip i mean when the fishing's right the fishing's right dude and you know andy andy is a guy that probably no one knows about unless they fished a tournament 
uh, and, and suffered a loss at his defeat, maybe in the Georgia area. But, uh, you know, the guy is just a wealth of knowledge, and he has been remarkably kind in offering that knowledge to me, yourself as well, both deer hunting, um, fit bass fishing, everything. I mean, the guy's just one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. And I just want to say shout out to Andy for, you know, hosting us again the other night because, uh, uh, he, he's great company. He, he, uh, he's kind of a softer spoken fella. He doesn't talk a lot, but when he talks, it tends to make you laugh. You know, I mean, he's, he's one of those guys. Um, maybe I just caught him when he was wore out after fishing with you all day, but that's, that's been my, my, uh, <laughs> experience with him, but it was, it was a good time, man. And you're right. I, I was able to catch a couple fish right there. Despite the wind, there was a little lull in the wind and I, you know, pulled a couple upgrades. So, you know, there are worse things. Yeah, yeah, that was the uh, only lull in the wind. Him and I were <laughs> getting uh, pretty much blown everywhere yesterday uh, with with the wind. Uh, wasn't really planning on that, but uh, we still caught some fish, had a good time, and uh, he was uh, – Andy didn't have any problem catching fish, that's for sure. <laughs> he, he was definitely uh, – and it shows because now he's at the top of the leaderboard of the Yak and for Bass Challenge. Yeah, and you know that's kind of a that's kind of exactly where we expected him to be. I mean, Andy is he's an animal when it comes to bass fishing. He's got a, a system that works for him. And last year's winner, Adam Glass, has freely admitted that he's mortified uh, of one person in this tournament, and it's Andy. <laughs> yep, yep, that's what I kept. I told uh, Andy last night. I'm like, yeah, I said Adam's gonna be uh, getting nervous when you start posting these fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on Tourney X. <laughs> Oh man, I I love I love the yakking for bass challenge because it brings out that competitive spirit. And um, uh, Adam is a again fairly soft spoken fella. Uh, doesn't doesn't he does not smack talk very well at all. Like he apologizes after he makes a joke, and you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny to see that that fire get lit in him whenever he talks about Andy. Man, he's like he's he's like, oh, I gotta fish clean, man. I gotta start fishing cleaner. I'm not gonna get these fit. I'm not gonna beat Andy. <laughs> oh yeah yeah he's a great guy i mean he's he's in ministry so that's what you would expect somebody yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in ministry where they're talking and then if they are going to talk smack they kind of talk like even quieter like it's almost a whisper <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so but yeah it's all good time good fun everybody's having a good time uh on our, our own little marco polo group that we got for uh the yakking for bass challenge so I, 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 th- yesterday was the first day I've gotten out to fish, but uh, I know I was watching Marco Polo, and there were quite a few of you guys that were on the water at midnight fishing, like minute one of the tournament. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were. Um, Austin, Austin uh, sends me a message and says, uh, basically, like, I might go fishing tonight. And then he he committed to it, and then peer pressure kicked in, and I committed to it. And so at midnight, he and I go fishing, and we're, we think we're the only people out there. Adam Glass, like, Marcoed us, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to bed, guys, tucking myself in. And he went to sleep for, like, 45 minutes, and then Nick Chandler picked him up from his house, and uh, they were out there night fishing as well. So um, the, the sad thing was it was a total bust, <laughs> you know. <laughs> know you're out there early but it was a total bust but uh you know we quickly remedied that in the coming days and i think we've already had almost 100 fish submitted by the way oh wow that's pretty good yeah that's four days into the tournament that's real good yeah yeah yeah, we had some people get out to an early jump uh, which is normally the case but it's a long grind so they'll, they'll be and there's a bunch of people looks like that haven't fished yet so 
uh, that's the one thing is like you never know uh, with this challenge. It, all it takes is one good day for somebody to go out, and next thing yeah. you know, they're at the top of the leaderboard. Oh yeah, and it, and even if they're at the top, I mean, like I like I mean, I lost a well, I lost five fish right from the jump. There was a, again a lull in the wind. I lost five fish, changed my hook up. I had a little experimental hook set up. Didn't really care for it. Uh, the first one that I lost or one of the first ones I lost, I think you ended up losing as well. It was in the same general area. Super aggressive fish, hit really, really hard. Um, you know, I was sitting there in the top four or five uh, up until last night, and in a span of an hour, you know, I jumped up to first place just having caught those two fish that I did manage to land. So it doesn't take much, man. A hot hand, a hot hour. I mean, if you go out a couple times throughout the month of um, the tail end of May and, and the first half of June, you can get out there and be competitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's still plenty of time to – I mean, you can still get up, sign up for for the challenge. You got uh, until the last day, basically, to sign up for the yep. challenge. And there's two ways to win prizes. So even if you got that last day and catch a 23-inch fish, you could win the big bass for the tournament. So you, there's still a way for you to win. Even if you, you can't fish right now, you can still get on a little bit later. If you get some free time or whatever, you go, hey, I, I'm going to sign up for this. I still, there's still a chance I could win this. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's two ways you can win. Uh, the first way is you post five fish whose total length uh, beats everybody else, uh, which is a, you know, there, there's some competition there. The other way is we've got a second bracket where you can win just by simply catching the biggest fish. And to do that, you only have to catch one. Um you know, last year I, I caught almost a 22-inch fish out of out of obvious luck because I don't ever catch fish. Um, so anybody can do it. And I think right now uh, the longest fish is 22.5, uh, which it that's a big fish. But, I mean, it's not by any means a once-in-a-lifetime sized fish. So uh, you guys need to get out there. If you're interested in donating some money to, to uh, a good cause, takemefishing.org, we're going to be able to donate a couple hundred uh, dollars again this year because of everybody who signed up. So huge shout out to everybody i do want to uh talk about one thing real quick there's been a little bit of confusion uh on a couple cases here uh if you want to participate you do have to fish from a paddle sport vessel uh, we did allow an exception for inner tubes uh, a lot of bank fishermen have wanted to participate and we came up with a middle ground buy yourself an inner tube there are fishing inner tubes you can have for like 120 bucks or you could just fish from a regular inner tube if you wanted to don't really care but it's got to be done from a kayak a paddle board um a canoe or a inner tube, uh, flota- you know, a floating tube of some some way, shape, or form. Uh, boats that uh, are paddle powered do not count. So it has to be, you know, the, the intent has to be, you know, you you power it with your feet or you power it with your hands. Um, yeah. So yeah, just just want to put that out there. We had some some confusion there, and it cost somebody a really really big fish. I hate to say it, but <laughs> yes. you know, he 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 was a good sport about it. Thank goodness, but uh, broke my heart to reach out and be like, dude, I'm sorry, but <laughs> um, right. yeah, man. So it's it's been a good time, and and we got to see your big buck, which is a monstrous deer, dude. I mean, you've got it on a barrel as the centerpiece, along with two other deer that you're mounting for your backyard. <laughs> or not backyard, but your uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said that for your for your house. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the it was good to uh, get the buck back in my possession. Uh, like I mentioned, Andy did a really good job. I got it back pretty darn quick. Uh, as normally, I've had to wait about a year to get a buck back. So this was kind of a, a good change. And uh, I've been working on a project 
uh, with this pedestal mount that I bought and bourbon barrel that I fixed up. So I'm still working on it, tweaking it a little bit, but I think it's all going to come together. I've gotten a lot of uh, compliments on it. So I should be, once I get it all done, I'll, uh, I'll post a picture to social media so uh, everybody can see what it looks like. Yeah, man. It's, it's a good thing. And on the topic of deer, we, we've got an episode tonight uh, with Jason Red. Jason Red's been on the show. In fact, the last time we had him on was a little over a year ago. Uh, Jason Red is the founder of Timber Ninja Outdoors, the carbon fiber tree climbing uh, or, or the carbon fiber tree stick company, that is. And uh, fantastic product, even better person behind the, the brand. And I know that Jason happens to be a wealth of knowledge with regard to hunting western North Carolina. And while that doesn't sound like it maybe it makes sense or applies to you. There are some shocking similarities to Western North Carolina to a lot of the southeastern United States. The habitat is relatively unproductive for whitetails. It's not managed very well, similarly to how we have abundant pines that don't exactly produce the best food for deer. They've got so much, so, so tall of a canopy that it chokes out any kind of undergrowth. And so you have a low deer density there, similar to how we have in, in, in much of Florida. It's a very low deer density. The habitat's monotonous. The one advantage they have is they have good topographic features, uh, but the hunting by no means is easy. And I think there's, I think there's some lessons to be learned from Jason and and the tidbits he shared on how he goes about thinking, uh, maybe a little more unorthodox about finding uh, where the deer are. Uh, yeah, I, I've never, I've been to North Carolina. Uh, it. it was at least the part of North Carolina I was in. It was it was pretty uh, hilly, <laughs> uh, a lot more elevation than Florida has. But uh, I, I wasn't able to make this episode. It was you and him, so I'm I'm looking forward to, to uh, listening to this one and uh, hoping to pick up any uh, tips or tactics that uh, Jason might have. Yeah, no, it's it's a good one. I think you're going to enjoy it. I think everybody's going to benefit from this one. And I, also, I just kind of want to. Uh, put out an invitation here for you guys we are trying to highlight um deer prep uh specifically deer prep in the south if we can if we can identify some good guests and if you have someone who you think uh consistently gets after big deer in the south uh consistently it is successful because of their preparation before well before the season we'd love to talk to them so shoot us a dm or tell them that we're looking to talk to them you know connect us however it is you want to and uh, we'd be more than glad to have him on the show because there's there's a lot of guys like Jason that fly under the radar unless you stumble upon them you're not going to find them toting their tactics on on online and they're not out there making YouTube channels but there's a lot that they can offer and I think this is one of those examples yeah yeah I, I've always kind of tried to mention to any of our listeners hey if you know somebody that would be a great podcast guest uh introduce us to them so we can get them on the show um there's still a lot that i have to learn about deer hunting yourself <laughs> and uh we we want to just try to find people that haven't necessarily been on a hundred different podcasts and might bring something a little different to the table so we it'd, it'd be great if uh you guys could send some people our way yeah, absolutely. Speaking of people, we couldn't do this podcast, which is for you people, without certain people's help. First and foremost, that's the Patreon members. Uh, don't forget that we're doing a quarter or two giveaway that includes a Browning 
cell camera and five five Simmons trail cameras. Those are the non-cellular trail cameras, the ones that I used a lot this year. I really feel like they provide a real good bang for the buck, and the combination of the two I think is really going to help you sell out on wherever it is you're hunting, whether it's public, whether it's private. You heard Brett talk about selling out on areas. You've heard a lot of people talk about the use of trail cameras. They are an incredible tool that can be utilized uh, to help you break down a piece of property in a way that has made me more successful, Chase more successful, and a lot of other people, but there's a science to it. So go back and listen to those episodes. But while you're listening, check out the link in the show notes, join Patreon. We'll enter you for a chance to win. Uh, depending on what tier you're in, you get more or less entries. Depending on what tier you're in, you get a hat, you get added to the Marco Polo group, which is a group of, of uh, about 20 people right now that it's a really close community that shares information, gear tips, people help other people with issues that they have, whether it's a bow tune setup or trail camera use or picking out a kayak for the Yak and for Bass Challenge. It's a great group of, of people that really have a good time just enjoying the outdoors. Love the uh, the Patreon community that we've uh, built for the podcast. And you're right. I mean, pretty much, uh, especially with the Marco Polo group, uh, there's all kinds of questions that normally get asked. And pretty much there's always somebody that has an answer. So I think that's great, and if you're interested in something like that, then uh, I hope you consider joining our Patreon. Absolutely, yeah. And, and and we would be remiss if we didn't also tie in a really great product that, that'll help you take those trail cameras, take that body of knowledge that, that, that occurs inside the Marco Polo group and from the guests that we've had, and, and, and translate it to where you are. If you haven't already, we've done a couple episodes with the founder of Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is awesome. AI learning for deer. What he's done is he's taken tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of data points of GPS deer, tagged in your area, overlaid every possible metric you can think of from wind, humidity, altitude, whether or not there's pressure in the area, all kinds of different information. He's cleaned it up and he's made predictions with it. And we found that it's very, very intuitive. It, it really helps you make those decisions when you have tree stand picketitis, which is where you can't figure out where you're going in the morning before you leave. Um, and, and on top of that, what you do with these trail cameras now is you're going to soon be able to query the information based on a spot, based on the location inside Spartan Forge. So as it is right now, it's a static thing where you, you, you look at the forecast for the next few days. But in the future, you're going to be able to hit that historical data on your phone from the app, and you can take the trail camera information that you have, align it with what was going on that day, and start to pick out patterns. And I think this is a really, really awesome step for Spartan Fords. It's really going to help any anybody who does long soaks like we do. And as those features continue to roll out, the cost of that of that product is going to increase upwards of $70 a year. Whereas right now, if you use the promo code Chasing Tails, you can get locked in for life for 20 bucks. And, and I really, really enjoy the idea of being able to leave my trail cameras in the woods for a long period of time when the deer moves through look at Spartan Forge and see if there's a correlation. And if there is, now I am, I just feel equipped and I will feel equipped at that point to really make strategic decisions. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think this uh, Spartan Forge is a great uh, app for the person that can't necessarily get out and scout all the time. Uh, I I think it's going to be really wonderful for somebody like that. Um, because like you mentioned, all of the variables that it takes into place, uh, there's even more coming uh, with the app, which we kind of discussed before, which I think will be an, uh, something that will really change the game uh, for hunting as well. So uh, if you are interested in something like this, then go ahead and get locked in for that $20.
Absolutely, man. Well, with that, we aren't going to waste any more words on this show because you guys know if you've listened before, I can talk until you guys just get exhausted of hearing my just harpy voice. So we're going to get you onto the show. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jason Red. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have got a, a person on the line that uh, I looked it up right before I called him. We haven't had him on since, uh, let's see, March 16th of 2020, uh, and, and that's an injustice to you guys, so I owe you an apology for not having this fellow back on. We're talking to the founder of Timber Ninja Outdoors, Jason Red. Dude, what is new in your world? Not much. I would also call myself the janitor of Timber Ninja Outdoors. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, thanks for having me back on, man. Not, not much going on here, man. Just, uh, you know, building sticks hanging out, getting ready for some summer activities, and then gearing up for next season for hunting, man. I'm, I'm already pumped. Um, i got a pretty nice whitetail season this year I'm excited about. So, Well, we had a, a fellow by the name of Brett Mashburn. I, I am told you, you, you may be familiar with who that is. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he was at our teaching train event the other day and he did a demonstration with with his uh, little aider setup and what he, you know, how he uses your aider with a canader type situation and uh man, there was a um I I don't mean this in any competitive sense, but there was a true battle royale between the the T1s that were there and your sticks and the, it was just back and forth, man. It was it was cool to to, to be in an event and see so many like just it's cool to see the hunting industry actually provide elite products. I, I feel like we just kind of get, like, kind of. Oh, maybe I'm gonna get myself in trouble here, but I feel like when we spend money, we tend not to get the same quality product that we get elsewhere. But you guys, mm. Tether, there's some guys really bringing high quality products to the market, and it feels like when you spend that money, you're getting what you pay for. Yeah, you know, I, um, I agree with that, and I'm not just saying that because you know we're talking about products, but. Uh, I do feel like there are some people um, that are starting to make things a little bit more advanced, you know, just in in the style of how they operate. I mean, if you look at most aluminum sticks, they've always, always looked the same to a degree, you know, except for like, you know, the hawks are a little different, but most everything else was built very similar. And, but now I think things are starting to get a lot more, I don't want to say futuristic, but they're, they're, they're looking a lot more modern than what we've came up with. So it's pretty cool. I mean, and that's what our goal is to always to just push the boundary of innovation. You know, that's, you know, what we're doing with our other products as well. But, um, and I, you know, Tether, you know, they're doing that and, you know, other companies as well. And it's, it's pretty awesome. And those teaching trains, man, they, they're solid events. I've, I've had so many people reach out to me um, from various ones they've been to around the, you know, the region. I mean, I think most of them have been like Midwest, this, southeast southwest here recently but you know it's just having consumers that are coming to this uh connect with other hunters uh and bringing their gear and showing it it's really paying off man like i, I mean we've like i said i've had a lot of people hit me up and you know place orders and stuff just based on our customers taking their stuff out there and you know we're you know, we're just humble with the people that have done that it's awesome and brent he's he's awesome dude man like I listen to his podcast and I talked to him. I talked to him a few times actually. And, um, man, he's been getting it done with some deer too. Like his, I think he tagged out his first day in Missouri this year or something. I believe, I believe it was first. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's getting it, man. It's funny when it starts clicking for people and, and you can pretty much take that same pattern and 
throw it in different areas, you know. Um, and that's regardless of the game, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, once you start kind of figuring out how, you know, critters operate, it, um, I'm not going to say it gets easy, but it gets a little bit easier to have opportunities. It's not, it's never easy to actually, um, you know, make it happen sometimes, you know, things go wrong there, but it does t tend after you start putting all the puzzle pieces together a little bit, you can start replicating that and getting opportunities at least. Absolutely. And that's going to be the subject of today's podcast. You and I are going to kind of sit down. We're going to do a little highlight of Western North Carolina deer hunting in the Appalachians, uh, Appalachian mountains. That is, I, it's an area that has always intrigued me. Um, being that I come from a place that, you know, the elevation grade over a hundred miles is, is, you know, about 10 feet of, of elevation change. It, it, it's one of those situations where I, I, I go up to where you guys are and things start to make sense a lot more quickly. And I don't mean that in, um, a demeaning way per se, you know, right. I'm not, you know, it's not easy, but it, it's like, you know, where you think deer are supposed to be, they tend to be, um, Whereas it's, it, you know, there, you don't have the, the, the geological or topographical features that, that do things, but where you hunt comes with its own inherent disadvantages as well. I mean, it seems like the more I talk to you and Tyler and Jordan, um, all members up there at, at Timber Ninja, I think actually we've had all three of you on the podcast too. Um, now that I think about it, when I, when I talk to you guys, it seems like your deer density, um, kind of suffers a little bit oh man yeah i mean all the places i've hunted i would say western north carolina is probably the lowest deer density i've ever experienced we so in the national forest that i hunt uh it's there's 0.4 bucks killed per square mile so i mean so that when you think about how many square miles we have and you know and that's essentially averaged out right so it's like um you a lot of times have to go a few miles before you can even find them. So, yeah, I mean, that's our biggest struggle is definitely the deer density. And to your point, um, once people start to understand hunting mountain country and mountain country, in my opinion, varies from hill country. So, uh, and we're, you know, we're talking about that, you know, Appalachian mountain range, you know, that, that it's just different terrain and, you know, essentially animals somewhat, you know, you know what all their main needs are, right? You just have to put it together based on the terrain. But I, I do agree a little bit about like, you know, the terrain is makes them a little bit more predictable rather than hunting like the swamps of Florida and stuff like that. And, and in my, you know, I grew up hunting river bottoms in the Mississippi Delta, but which is low country, but there's still a little, a little bit, there's a lot of stuff that kind of funnels the animals. Uh, I started hunting uh, coastal South Carolina a few years ago, which I've talked to you about that a couple of times. And it definitely is different, man. Cause like everything's board flat and like, I mean, you can look at different um, habitat, how it comes together and, you know, things like that to kind of predict how the animals are going to move or, you know, even like the coastal, you know, the water coming up from, you know, tides and stuff, you know, where I hunt, but it is a little different, but up here in the mountains, like, if you can find the deer and you kind of figured it out, you, you, you have a good idea what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, you know, but there's definitely, it's, it's not a turnkey, like one or two year type, um, uh, skill to, to adapt, you know, perfect, you know, it takes, definitely takes some time. And the key is finding them. Yeah. 
so gosh, there's so many different ways we could take this, and I had a, a script going into it, and now I just feel like I feel compelled to toss it out. But can we let's um. I feel like Coastal Carolina will be kind of similar. What? Let's kind of open that can a little bit. What What has been your experience in that area? Have you found any success? I mean, like, where Where do you feel like you are? You mentioned how when it starts to click, you start getting on um, on deer. Ha, has that started to happen in Coastal Carolina for you? Yeah, I had a really good year the first year I hunted it. Like, I saw a really good buck on this public piece, and um, and he was about 10 yards too far for me to get a shot on him. Um, he's like 35 yards and that's like 10 yards too far for me, uh, with my bow. But, uh, and then I went back last year. I've only been hunting that place two years. So last year I found a couple bucks and, um, it's just, I bumped one out of his bed. Didn't get a good look at him, but you know, I found a sign, knew he was a mature animal and, you know, how he ran off through the swamp after this hearing, he was heavy, but, and I hunted him for the most of the time I was there. I, I only go down there and hunt like a week. And then, you know, we, I usually go down there for Thanksgiving and, uh, and it's essentially after it's post rut. Uh, so it's, we're not running crazy. October would be the time I'd like to go, but you know, I mean, there are a lot more deer down there and the WMA hunt there has some ag and stuff like that. So you can kind of funnel them in between bedding and food, which does help. And, and then, you know, just move around and look for those little isolated areas where those mature bucks are going to be hanging out. But one thing I did find about the, how this buck was using this place, there was a swamp, I was hunting right next to the swamp and he had sign on both sides of the swamp. And, um, it took me the end of the trip to figure out what he was doing. He was actually crossing the swamp. And after I bumped him that day, what he, uh, and I saw his trail because I set up on him on the other side of the swamp towards the end of my trip, had him come in on me before daylight and heard him walk out through the swamp. And then when I got down that morning, that was the last morning I was hunting, I, I climbed up a tree and looked out in that swamp and there was like a little high spot in the, slap in the middle of that thing. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure he was dead right there. And uh, I actually talked to uh, Greg Lipsinger about it because you know he hunts a lot of swamps and marshes and and I was like man I think I want oh, next year I'm gonna try to if that deer is still using that area and in that area I was gonna wait out in some uh, chest waders and just step off his trail and try to catch him coming out and it's a tactic that he's used and said it works pretty well so that'd be pretty fun it's just going to stand there and stand there in chest waders for a while unless you had some kind of cool some type of huge marsh seed or something i don't know you you need one of those um hawk cells and they've got like three paddles that basically split, spread out their, their their duck hunting seats and you just put it in the marsh mud and it displaces your weight and you can just sit there that's what you need oh i have to look that up yeah, yeah. i'm gonna try that but if i go back in october that's when gators and stuff are all out so i don't know if i'm gonna mess around that swamp well oh well there's a lot of gators in there uh, yeah, well, it's swamp. Yeah, <laughs> swamp in yeah, the south. Swamp. There's going to be gators. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's you know that's it about the coastal stuff. I'm I'm definitely a little bit more. I'm still a I'm a white belt in swamp hunting. I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, um, I, you know, I'm figuring it out and getting on deer, but like haven't killed one down there, and uh, maybe this year I will. We'll see. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so so let's let's bring that kind of full, full circle back to west Western North Carolina. Let's give everybody a little bit of the backstory. How many years of experience do you have in that area? I've been here for twelve years, and uh, since I moved here, I started hunting here, and then that's really what led me into going to other mountainous, you know, mountainish east coast regions of the Appalachian chain. So I've hunted Southern Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina and Tennessee, um, all in, in that range for, uh, in Kentucky, forget about Kentucky. Um, so, you know, all the hill countries that kind of, inter, that are kind of like all part of the Appalachian range. Now, all, all of those states are not equal with regards to mountains. I, I am told that aside from, from western North Carolina, that West Virginia is probably the most uh, in, intense of them. What 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 kind of uh, physical exertion are we looking at in the areas you hunt in western North Carolina? Uh, I mean, western North Carolina is, you know, we, we have the biggest mountains on the east coast. You know, we have Mount Mitchell here, which is like 25 miles from my house. So it's six to 300 feet. So, I mean, we're, you know, you're starting to, kiss higher elevation, you know, like some of these areas you're getting, you know, in those areas you're getting a little bit above tree line for the East coast. And, uh, so, you know, it's very steep, rugged, um, old, old mature forest. Uh, most places like you have, you know, you're 10, 15 miles from any type of private agriculture or anything like that. So it's, it's big woods, steep mountain hunting and, and that's the areas i prefer to hunt personally and, and you know same thing you know west virginia is a little different the mountains aren't as high but they're they're real steep and sharp you know here the appalachian range itself it's, it's a very old mountain range you know like some people, geologists say that essentially at one time mount mitchell was as high as higher than mount everest so it was a big range it's it's essentially been wetted down over you know thousands of years and uh so it's you know, it's big here and like West Virginia is more like, you know, where I hunt anyways, like a lot of really steep, rugged, um, just up and down like shark fin ridges is what I would call it. It's, they're not as high. And so like, as far as putting an effort, yeah, it's, you have to, you know, get after it for a little bit, but like, it's not as long, like some of the climbs and, you know, where I hunt, you know, you're, if I, if I come in from the top, which sometimes I have to just because that's the only access I have, or I have to come in, you know, seven to 14 miles from another trailhead down below, um, <clears throat> you just have to, you know, you'll have to walk a mile or two back out of this place, you know, gain, you know, 1,000, 1,200 feet elevation. So it's, it's not fun. I, well, I, I think it's fun, but it's <laughs> like, you know, like if you're not ready for it, you definitely can get kicked in the teeth. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, through talking to you off offline before this podcast, you got a low deer density. Um, Tyler would argue severely mismanaged forest, so um, food sources aren't abundant. Um, you know, if you have a bumper acorn crop, it's both a blessing and a curse in the sense that it's a bumper acorn crop, and so <laughs> the deer are everywhere. If you don't, then you know, vice versa, all the deer get concentrated. You have to find them. I, I hear a lot of of similarities between here and Florida and a lot of the Southeastern areas. What, what do you think has, has been key for you in navigating an area like that? 
um, as far as like having success and opportunities. Sure. I mean, I, I think maybe we yeah. can break this down into almost two, two parts though, right? You could almost say just simply getting on deer consistently. And then is there any tier or, or steps you had to take it beyond that to get on a, a different age class? Yeah. Well, I mean, starting out, I just, I really knew nothing. I mean, I, like I said, I grew up living in the Mississippi Delta, so completely different landscape and how I hunted. And when I moved here, like I was having a really hard time at first trying to find, just find any deer. Um, and, you know, cause I was hunting low, I was uh, going to these places that look, look real pretty, but essentially didn't have the mountain habitat to hold deer, um, you know, based on things that you're talking about, you know, uh, food sources, cover, you know, water, all these things. Uh, and so I was like looking low in all these pretty open spots. And then, you know, I started venturing higher in the mountains and bumping more deer up around these laurel and rhododendron thickets, which, you know, that's one of our best sources of cover up here for bedding is like laurel and rhododendron because we don't have a lot of cuts, you know, based on, you know, you're saying about Tyler talking about, um, you know, how the forest is managed. So we don't have a lot of timber cuts. So, you know, primarily one of our main sources of bedding is, um, is a laurel and rhododendron thickets. So I never would have thought animals would be living in this stuff and it's, it's such a pain to get in. And, but like the higher I went up the mountain, I started seeing a little bit more deer sign uh, in certain areas. And then I started focusing around that. Um, the thing is, is like, it, in my opinion, it, it's almost it's almost easier here to like focus on killing a mature buck than it is sometimes to kill any deer because um, most of the time you know when I find a buck that's that's mainly the only deer I may see you know to be honest with you um, and it took me some time to figure out um, where these older bucks like to hang out and uh, and you have to cover tons of country to find them, you know, I mean, but then once you start figuring it out, you can start looking at maps and crossing some places off and then going in and, you know, you have a higher success rate because, like I said, I mean, we, Pisgah National Forest is like, I think, what, 275,000 acres. So, I mean, it's a big track of country to cover. Um, but, yeah, once, you know, I started figuring out where I mean, I killed some small deer when I first moved here, and then I started finding bigger deer because at first I didn't even know um, we had big deer here. Because if you talk to anybody, like there wasn't many folks killing big deer when I first moved here, but you know, it, it does get better every year, and I don't know if that's because I, our population is growing. Uh, or just more people are starting to come back to hunt the mountains like they used to, because we used to have a really decent deer density back in, um, like in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And it was kind of a sought after place to hunt, but then the deer density started going down and there's a lot of poaching going on. There's all these things and people started moving away and not hunting the public lands. They were, you know, going and getting leases in Virginia and South Carolina and places like that. So, so it kind of seems like you can, in order to get on bucks, you, you almost have to sell out entirely to go after a certain age class, right? I mean, it sounds like what you're what? saying is you get, you, you get one or two opportunities and they tend to be a mature deer. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it there's some areas like some WMAs that we have close by that they do some management with food plots and things like that. And, 
they they tend to hold a little bit more deer but the thing is they're also going to hold a lot of people and they're not really big tracks either so you're going to be bumping in a lot of people and i just my style of hunting no matter where i go is i want to find less people regardless of you know how many deer there are like if, if there are deer in an area and there's not that many people you have a really good chance of finding a mature deer you know um so i really like to take that gamble personally and so that's what i do around here like yeah i could go down uh to some of these wmas and you know bump into people all the time and you know be able to whack a bunch of does or you know maybe get a decent buck or see some smaller bucks but uh you know i think your time's better spent getting up in the mountains and doing a lot of scouting and finding some areas that are holding deer and just really you know focusing just laser focused on those you know those specific areas and finding that deer because you know there's most of the spots i hunt i rarely run into people and um I picked up a guy last last year on one of my trail cameras in one of these spots, and it, it shocked me if there was a guy hunting back there, honestly. And I, to be frank, I, I kind of think it was a guy. He looked like a guy that that I know that I think knows where I hunt that based on some pictures that I've posted on um, social media. So um, I don't know. I think maybe a little bit of that happened. Interesting. You know, I, I, I'm I'm a big fan of hunting up there because it poses different challenges. We went up and hunted for turkey. Um, oh God, it feels like it was years ago, but it was probably only a couple of weeks. Um, and w- when we were there, it was it was one of those things where the animals just act different. You know, you're talking about going high to get to the rhododendron to get to the cover. My first thought would have been to get low. Because that's just mm-hmm. where I find them here is down in the bottoms. You know, yes, again, mm-hmm. it's a 20-foot elevation change, but you don't find them up on the tops. They're down in the bottoms. And so um, it, it's interesting to me. To The turkeys did similar things. Like I told my little brother, I'm like, listen, that's too steep. The turkey's going to come up this road, right, this 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 nice gravel <laughs> road. The turkey's going to come up the least path of least resistance. And to me, the path of least resistance was the, the gravel road, and the turkey's like, he'll be damned, and just, you know, popped it, popped the hubs in four-wheel drive and just came right over the top and was right on top of us. You know, this happened to us literally several times. The, the whole adage, a turkey won't cross a creek. Well, in the mountains, they don't care about the creeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fly over them in a second. <laughs> and so yeah. it, it was. it's interesting to me, and, and it's a challenge that one day I, I plan on, on taking on just because I, I think it would be an absolute blast to try and – you know, diversify. Cause I don't think anything bad can come from trying to, uh, increase how you approach whitetails, right? Like the, like having flexibility of thought, which I think getting too rigid and this is how I do it. This is what I'm looking for. You know, growing your, your skill set I think is valuable as an outdoorsman. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, and another thing is like, you know, hunting the mountains, like personally, like that's the really, besides doing this stuff down our coast a little bit and it's just because I, I have a house down there and we go there for thanksgiving and like i want to hunt during thanksgiving um like it wouldn't be somewhere that i sought after you know sought out sorry uh to go hunt i just love hunting the mountains because even a bad day in the mountains you get to live and you know take in these views and this 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 type of country that's you know i'm very fortunate because i live here but you know for a lot of people that want to travel out and do these types of hunts like it's you know there's some breath taking experience just in nature and um and these hunts are you know in these bigger 
national forest tracks like they're an adventure um but you know and like you said earlier like a whitetail is the most adaptable species of the you know the deer herd in my opinion i mean you look at how many different ranges whitetails live in um you know they live in low country you know in the swamps where you live they live in the mountain deserts you know because essentially a coos deer is a, a whitetail um you know and they live in the mountains where we live and like they're just they live in the suburbs like they can adapt to their environment so easy so like up here yeah man like sometimes i want to say like some of these bucks up here like you know one side of their legs is shorter than the other because they side hill these steep ridges all the time <laughs> you know um but like i mean i agree like there's some spots that i've found bucks in and and being able to kill bucks in that i wouldn't have thought a deer would be navigating through just because like you know boulder fields and things like that but you know they you just once you kind of figure out the terrain you can figure out how they're they're moving through it and it, it definitely you know can make it a lot easier but you know you just got to spend the time of putting it's a, it's a lot of footwork man and uh i am a big advocate in that uh if you find a deer you know like a buck using an area and you kill him if he's a mature animal i think another buck's always going to come take him and uh, take over that spot because you know some of the ones that i've killed you know they i've had pictures of them being bachelored up you know and then they split up so he more than likely runs them out of his range right so when he gets killed out another subordinate's primarily you know going to take over that area so you can be repetitive in some of these areas and i've been you know a lot of the areas i hunt like i've had successful you know success um based on that because like i found where they were living because the habitat was there like we were talking about earlier like the habitats um can, can be pretty scarce when, to have all these things that make the conditions right for to hold mature age class animals you know um you know like food like you know mass is, is one part up here but then you also need to find some successional growth low stem count stuff uh, you got to have the cover and if you have big mature woods the only cover you have is like I was talking about earlier is laurel thickets and then having water I, I tend to find a lot of my bucks uh, pretty close to like where creeks start out you know like creek heads and usually the vegetation is a lot more lush, lush in there so like I think that has something to do with it also it's an easy water source um, and uh and usually there's laurel thickets around so that when i see all those things come together i'm i'm always you know going in there and putting some putting some time in to see if i find any mature bucks on so i hear you kind of dancing around the different things you're looking for if you had to like summarize your tactics what what would you say they are well usually um when i find a deer i usually find him one year and I, I either kill him the next or two years after it's you know i usually find them and how i do that is <clears throat> um i mean it's taking some time but i'll find a buck get him on camera like say the previous year just because i let some cameras soak all through deer season and and i use them for inventory more than anything and uh i will find that deer uh and i usually pull my camera cameras or pull my cards in turkey season 
because like some of these areas are, you know, a pain to get back into. So I like, I have to have a purpose to go in there. You know, someone can be three, four miles deep. So I'll let those cameras soak during deer season. I'll put them, well, let me back up. I'll put them out during rifle season because like I like to use rifle season as a time to still hunt through bigger tracts of country. And I just, I really enjoy doing that. It's fun. And, you know, I've gotten lucky and, you know, kill a few, you know, decent bucks just by hunting off the ground and slowly moving around and scouting. And what I'm doing is I'm scouting also for, you know, either the next year or, or our late archery season, because I really enjoy our late archery season up here in December. Um, so, but I'll put out cameras then. And then if I even don't go back into that spot uh, during deer season, I'll go back during turkey season and pull cameras. And then I'll take an inventory of what's been coming through there, see if there's something I'm interested in. And then I, you know, turkey season and a little bit, some in the summer, I'll deploy more cameras and start scouting. And then, you know, come late summer, late July, August, I, I run cameras a little bit more aggressively to see what's really in there because our season opens early September. So I, I like to try to take an opportunity in our, you know, early season for that. But it, it's like every, every season is kind of the same for me. Like I'll, I'll find a deer I'm focused on, I'll see if I can kill him in early season. If that doesn't work out, you know, I'll transition. And I usually go hunt in the Midwest in uh, November. And then I come back home and start hunting with my rifle again around Thanksgiving. And um, and then, like I said, that I'm pulling intel um, based on either that deer I'm hunting or looking for another buck to hunt late season. Because uh, in December, the last two mature bucks I've killed, I've killed, uh, killed one in December 18th and then last year I killed one on Christmas. Wow. So, so legitimate, like late season. Okay. So most people talk about, about late season whitetails and how they get on them. The, the recipe is typically pretty simple. Find a soybean field full of soybeans. Uh, when the first, you know, freezing snow sleet storm gets here, you know, get, get on a, on a popular travel corridor. Are there mm -hmm. food sources in particular that you've identified late season, like, um, uh, nuttall oaks or something like that or are you still just going back to those dense areas that you know that those deer habit i i mean i have a i mean i think that's when the mature bucks are up here looking for those uh younger does okay you know, it's like a, you know quintessential second rut you know what some people may call it um and i because i get rut activity um up here on cameras all the way into february like, wow you know checking scrapes and and i know like for instance, Jordan saw a fawn last year, I want to say it was middle October, and it still had spots all the way up its neck. So, you know, that, that kind of shows, like, I think our rent's a little different. Um, so, like, I, I, I think early season for me, you know, the times that I really try to kill it, a mature buck I'm focused on is early season or uh, that late archery season. It's like what I really put the most attention to here. And then during, you know, when our typical rut supposedly starts, which is around Thanksgiving, uh, that's when I'm just covering country with my rifle and um, seeing if I slip up on something or, you know, like I said, getting intel for late season or even the following season. 
That makes sense. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that a, that a stick bow fellow like yourself would pick up the rifle. I mean, that's that seems. Don't are, are they going to like excommunicate you from the traditional archery? What, what is it? What is it? Uh... Uh, man, you know, I I think it like it makes me like my rifle a little bit more sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, like I I went for a number of years where I wouldn't rifle hunt. Like I hadn't you know turned my nose up to rifle hunting because I was a bow hunter or whatever. But man, I don't know. I just love getting a rifle and walking around the woods and and shooting like i rarely hunt out elevated you know if i do it's only like one stick or something like that just kind of get up to see over a laurel thicket or something uh i just love covering country and hunting off the ground and um and it, it's worked out with me it worked out for me multiple times too like killing you know decent deer i haven't killed a monster that way yet but uh I've killed some good deer and when I'm, and I'm usually using that, you know, like I said, it's like, I like to go into new tracks that I've kind of had my eye on and just cover a bunch of country with a rifle. And sometimes going in there, like, you know, it just depends on like how the mood hits you. Like I killed it. I killed a, um, a younger buck this year on a hunt like that with my rifle, just went in and check out this new spot and they happened to be rutting there like crazy. And, uh, you know, funny part, I missed a, I missed a really good bucket, like 15 yards next shot. Uh, and I mean, I, I just killed a buck in Virginia two weeks later, shot him in the neck at like 30 yards. And this one ran up on me chasing a doe. And uh, I haven't told many people the story besides like, you know, Jordan. And, um, and this like really good buck runs up on me and um, chasing this doe and he stops like 15, 18 yards, something like that. And I put it on his neck and it's like, pretty much knew he was done. She pulled the trigger and he just stood there and I was like, geez, what happened? And, uh, and he jumped and I racked my bolt and he stopped broadside at about 25 yards and I put it on him, dead on him and click. I didn't like, I didn't pull my boat back far enough to like, it kicked the bullet out, but didn't engage another bullet. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so I was like, geez, I was like really pissed off. And, um, and then I was sitting there, I put a bullet in my gun and then I hear something coming and I hear a deer grunting and I like got ready. And it was like, it was like a, you know, like a two year old buck and it shot him right in the neck. Right. He pretty much stopped in the same tracks at that other buck that I'd missed. And I shot him in the neck and he dropped his tracks. So I don't know what happened, man. Uh, I'm confident it wasn't buck fever. Uh, I just think some, some deer have, you know, they have, somebody watching after him but i i know where he's at like i put a lot of time in on him because there's another really good buck in there based on the sign that he this deer i don't think was capable of making um you know the deer i that i missed he was you know he's 18 inch you know tall eight point like real real good looking deer like especially going into a new spot but um there was some sign in there that was laid laid down by a, a real deer and uh so and this deer, you know, he can make a good jump next year. So I'm, I definitely put a lot of time in there this this uh, spring and had a bunch of cameras in there looking this space out. Yeah, I imagine so. I, I, my Weatherby, no, it's not a Weatherby. It's a um, Winchester. Does the same thing. There's a there's a all the other bullet action rifles I have. By the time it ejects the shell, it's close enough to engage. But with my Model 70, it's the same thing. If you rack the chamber too quickly, and I notice mm. that there's this distinct audible click. 
or tink that just occurs when it goes all the way back. And so I've just, I sat in the living room one day and I just racked the bolt several times until I had that like yeah. audible, like muscle memory because I did the same thing. Um, deer hunting. I did, I did the exact same thing, took a shot, went to rack it and click. And I, I was just like heartbroken. I was like, how could I have had a misfire? And then to pull it back and add insult to injury, it's not a misfire. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you didn't do your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you I, know, I mean, I, I guess to my credit, I've never had to shoot more than once. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I mean, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy the rifle hunts and a, a little bit, but I, I, my, I really love, you know, hunting with my stick bow. That's, that's the thing that really gets me going. And that's, uh, you know, I killed my buck on Christmas this year. I killed him with a stick bow and it was just, it was, it's really awesome. But, you know, I mean, but talking earlier, you're talking, you know, talking about, um hunting these pretty bottoms and stuff like that now don't get me wrong the, the bucks come down there and use that obviously i mean you're going to see have a chance at seeing more deer probably down those lower regions uh but your mature deer going to be up higher you know 90 in my opinion 90 plus percent of the time you're going in the mountains you're going to find them up higher but you'll find their sign down low but there's just not the the right cover and terrain to really hold them and make them feel safe. Um, I'm a, you know, my thing is I love, we have a lot of um, big primary ridges here and I'm a huge fan of hunting, I hunt finger ridges. So, you know, you got a primary ridge that has finger ridges coming off and I, I look at those finger ridges and put together those habitat keys that I was talking about earlier, you know, with the creek heads and, um, you know, good laurel thickets, and uh, it, that's try. You know, I find those areas that's where I'm gonna be focused on. And uh, ideally, I, you know, I'm I'm a big, big believer in hunting these deer in the beds. Uh, but it, 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 you know, they have a few ways to go out of them. You know, based on the wind, and uh, so like. I can't always guarantee I'm going to kill him. And, you know, you always don't know if he's there unless, you know, you use cell cams, which I don't use many of those. They don't really work very well up here because of our terrain. And, you know, honestly, with cameras in general, like I have a hard time with cameras just based on the bears. Bears take out, I'd say, 40, 50 percent of my cameras every year. So how big how big of a role do those play for you in that with that in mind? I mean, trail cameras for me are everything, I especially where I'm at. I have to identify dense pockets of deer with that being said. I mean, how does that, how does that still factor in? I mean, I use them a lot for inventory purposes. Uh, and then I will try to, if I find a bed, I will definitely, I will, I will position cameras in multiple areas around that bed to see, you know, what trails he's using. And then I start hunting that deer in his bed and, you know, I'm a big fan of hunting a, a, an animal on a wind that favors him more than me. I'm, I'm really big on hunting um, just a little bit off wind. And it's a, it's a, it's a gamble though, you know, like <clears throat> I was talking to um, my buddy, uh, Nathan Killen, which, you know, he's a big mountain hunter, like very well, heck of a lot more successful than I am. He's been doing it for a long time. He grew up here, but, uh, I've all, that was something I started doing. That's something he does some of himself too, is hunting these off winds. So 
essentially you have a wind that's going back into that deer that favors him for the use, but you just play just off of it. You have a short little window of opportunity to get a shot off on these animals um, in that. And, you know, the thing for me is that doing that, I have a really high success rate when conditions are right to at least have an opportunity. And I'm willing to gamble that because if you're always playing to win in your benefit, like it's not anything to him, you're, there's a good chance you're not going to see that animal, you know? Uh, whereas if you play it in his favor and you just gamble that off win, you're at least going to see him. And a lot of times if you set up properly, you're going to, you're going to get a shot on. Um, I mean, that's how I killed a buck this year. I killed, you know, the big deer I killed and I was at, 18 yeah 18 that killed him that way i've had multiple opportunities you know i mean i had two opportunities last year on other mature deer that i got busted doing the same thing um one of them was a really big deer i was hunting uh i think i've shown you pictures of him he was for up here he's a, you know he's like a probably i would say a 140 class uh a point just a stud of a deer and uh I set up on him this year like that and he came in, but he had a doe in front of him and I had my thermals breaking right off this finger ridge, like towards the point. And I knew they were coming down this finger ridge and crossing it to go to the, to this little thicket. And, um, it worked out like a charm, but the doe was in front of him and she caught my thermals before he stepped into the hole because, you know, they, when you're hunting these laurel thickets like that, you know, it's really thick and you only have really small openings to get a shot off. And like, he was just about to step into the opening. I mean, like all he had to do is take one more step and I would get him, you know, get a shot off, but she caught my wind or my thermals and blew and he just ran off with her, you know, without even looking. What's a, what's a, what's a like heartbreakingly large buck for up there? Right, like if, if that were to happen, let, let's say that second trigger pull w- was was the empty round was was a really big deer that would have kept you up at night. What, what does that look like for Western North Carolina? Uh, you know, like, I mean, as far as what I've seen, like that deer, he's he's up there. I mean, like I said, he's a hundred. You know, I say one forty. He's a high one thirty, one forty class deer, uh, which is a good deer for up here, but. I saw one in 19, uh, I was hunting this really nice 10 point and it was early season, early October. And I knew where these deer were bet or this buck was betting. And, um, I, uh, well, I knew that I didn't know this specific buck was betting there, but I knew there was a mature buck using this bed and I had a, this big 10 point coming through that I had on camera. And, um, I set up one day coming off, they were, they were side hilling. Um, it was like a east facing finger ridge and they were side hilling, leaving that point, coming back around and crossing the top of this Creek. And, uh, that day I set up, uh, there was a big, uh, mature, um, I want to say, I think it was an oak that had fallen down. So it created this root ball and I was just, uh, hanging out in that root ball and I, and I was set up kind of neutral because I'd been, there'd also been some activity coming from my left and the right. So I wanted to be set up either way. And, uh, I should have went with my gut and just essentially 
set up for him coming off that point. But I was just wasn't that confident and just thought, you know, couldn't listen to my gut, which is something that has proved me wrong so many times. And uh, anyway, uh, long story short, about 5.30, but, you know, I was honestly, I had a bear come in and she had some cubs. She saw me, the cubs were like, I don't know, 15 yards from me. She started like, you know, woofing and popping and doing some crazy stuff. And I'm like, and I was like, you know, I didn't want to yell because I, I had a good, I had a gut feeling, you know, a buck was in the area because it was based off the trail camera pictures. And uh, I didn't want to yell at her, but I was kind of like moving my bow and just like, you know, get out of here. And finally she just did her thing and left. And um, after that, I was looking at these birds. There was just like this big mass of birds, like little small birds flying around. And I was looking at them and I caught some movement outside my eye, corner of my eye. And I looked down and right where that bear came from there was just just a stud of a buck i had no history of him and he was way bigger in the 10 that i was hunting and the buck that i killed in 18 i could have set his horns down inside this deer's horn so just a quick glance like he was easy a 140 140 class deer it's beautiful chocolate horns something you don't see here that much and uh and he didn't know I was there, but like, I think he, he had smelt that bear and he was just on edge. So he was already really alert and, um, looking kind of my, in my, um, direction because that's where that bear had been. And, uh, I could never really get a drawn on him and he really needed to step into one more step into this hole, but I had like a really small window and he started, you know, doing the thing they like to do. They started moving his ears and he started to back step and I knew he was about to leave. So I drew real quick and try to take a snapshot with my recurve and shot right over him. But I would say, you know, that deer was at least 140 to 150. And uh, that's a, you know, that that's, that's a true stud up here. I mean, we, there's been some 160s killed in the last few years up here, um, but they're few and far. But my taxidermist says that um, about eight years ago, his average buck that came in was like 115 inches. And he said that it's, it's starting to go up now. Like we're starting to get more of like 140 class, 150 class deer getting killed. Like some of these coming off private land, don't get me wrong, but they're still, they're still close to the public. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, we, I don't know if any boon crockett deer have been killed up here, but I, I would say in the next few years, we, we're going to get pretty close to it. Yeah, that's 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 grown, man. I mean, I have to drive to Georgia to to consistently get on anything above eighty inches. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, it's 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 funny how a slight tweak in where you are makes such a difference, right? I mean, like forty five minutes north of me, relatively. I mean, we're still talking coastal plain, right? The soil's not great. There's a little more agriculture up there, a little like a little bit, not a whole lot. A little bit better soil, not a whole lot. The amount of deer is out of this world. The quality of deer is immediately better. I mean, it's it's funny how just a slight tweak can can have those impacts, and I imagine that that potential that you have up there is only going to increase as they start to manage that timber. I know that's something Tyler's really excited about. Yeah, I think so, man. I mean, but I still think that, and the size of the horns I see are better the higher I go up. 
and I don't know what, you know, and actually Nathan and I were talking about this when I, we were doing a scouting trip in Virginia, because uh, he finds the same thing in Southwest Virginia is that, you know, the antler size on the same age class of deer tends to be bigger, you know, in the higher elevation ranges, you know, which their elevations are pretty close to ours. Uh, and in, you know, there's some, you know, this gentleman's theory is like the, the survival of the fittest, you know, the strongest survive in these harsher environments. And so therefore those genetics get passed on and, you know, there's no true science behind that, but it does make sense. You know, if he's seeing that and I'm seeing that it's, you know, it, it is interesting. Um, so I think, you know, your opportunity to find those bigger deer, man, like if you just put the time in, you know, the higher up and deeper, rougher country, you know, they got things to live off, you know, they got food to live off of there. You know what I mean? Like these suckers will eat mushrooms, they'll eat um, ferns, they'll eat rhododendron, you know, laurel, you know, if it gets really rough, they'll eat those laurel buds and stuff. Uh, and then there is some, you know, mass up there. So they know how to make it work. Yeah. I, I think there's like those deer that just have up there have, my little brother said, you know, shit up here is just built different. And it's true. I mean, it's just that they're, yeah. they're, they're a survivor. They're a tougher, um, I, I have immense respect for people like you who actually enjoy it and consistently stay after it because I feel like there's just a different, there's a different sense of adventure and it's a lot of type two fun, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. and it is just, I, I see why people avoid it because, you know, where we were, isn't near as bad as where you're at. Um, we were able to get on deer fairly consistently. I've the biggest buck I've ever drawn back on was up in North Georgia. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I'm curious, what have you learned from Western North Carolina that translates to like the coastal plain or other places? Um, well, I mean, I think the thing that makes a person more successful is persistence. Um, you know, you just have to be persistent. Like, you know, it's really hard and I think there's a lot of luck that goes into it for these people that get to go into an area and kill something in the first weekend that they're there, especially like if it's an area that has zero history, in. you know, like what really plays out is persistence and knowledge. So if you understand how these animals use habitat and they all need the same things to survive and you can kind of work, I mean, this, this goes for elk or anything else. Like if you, put the information that you have to chase any career together, like you can translate that to any place that you go. Um, so like, I mean, same thing with when I go hunt elk, like I try to find, I like to hunt elk right before the primary rut and catch them when they're like just starting to get a little bit, you know, livened up, but still kind of stay in their home range. And usually those, you know, bigger elk that I've ran into, they're higher up the mountain. Uh, and, you know, so I use that same philosophy I use out here to find elk. And, you know, when I go to Ohio or anywhere else, it's, it's essentially the same thing. But I think the key is persistence and having a good attitude because, you, you know, if especially like hunting around here, for instance, like if you go 20 days without seeing a deer, but you, you have to be confident and have a good attitude to stay there because, you know, he's going to move at some time. I mean, some of these deer, these mature bucks, you know, they don't, 
it may be eight days before they come back through, you know, an area that you, you know, that you have some history with them on, you know, in daylight, because it takes them that, that amount of time to make their, their rounds. But you can hunt these areas a little bit more consistently than you would some other areas because the deer aren't moving through them so much so you're not going to lay down as much scent. Um, but persistence is key. Um, you really have to do a lot of scouting. I mean, as I've gotten older and learning more and talking to people that are way more successful than I am, the one common factor that I find from all of them is that they do a lot of postseason scouting. Um, they really know what's going on. They know every piece of that country, what deer are in there, you know, and that gives them a lot more ideas of, you know, where that deer can be when it becomes, if they're not finding, you know, exactly where they think they thought they were going to find them. You know, they have a good backup plan. We had Brett on recently, and he was talking about how he sells out to an area. Um, Jake Bush uh, hunts the the mountains or hill country of Ohio, and he, he tends to sell out to an area and put on a lot of miles, uh, you know, breaking down an area. And there seems to be a consistent theme that happens where – it's a year-round pursuit. It's a year-round, you know, thought process. It never really leaves the back of your mind. You might go fishing with your wife. You may go, you know, turkey hunting. But you're kind of always kind of cataloging or maybe crossing those over where applicable to where you can scout and turkey hunt and do stuff like that. And so um, it, it, it seems like you're right that, that the, the guys who get it done on those extraordinary deer have to put in an extraordinary effort kind of year-round. Yeah, well, you know, some of the areas that I hunt that aren't, you know, around my house, when I go to Virginia or West Virginia or Ohio or anywhere like that, like, I don't have that amount of time to put in scouting, you know? So, uh, and I love this, that style of hunting too. I go in and I use the same tactics and knowledge of where I found deer, you know, terrain features and stuff at home. And I apply it to these areas to like have a lot of, you know, you know, pins dropped, and, but when I go into some of these areas blind like that, I'm going to cover so much country and top find hot mature buck sign before I ever hang a stand or put any time into hunting that, hunting that area. Like uh, Heath and I hunted in Ohio last year and we, I don't know, I think we covered 15, 20 miles uh, in a few days before we like found it where we really wanted to hunt. Like we did some like just found some decent sign or some different decent terrain features and like set up for like an hour or two. But then we would, you know, in those first few days, but then we'd get down and start covering country until we found something really good. And, and by, you know, I think it was day three uh, and Jordan came in that weekend on Sunday after we'd been there and this, everything was working out perfectly as far as, you know, temperature and timing. This was a uh, November the 1st was the first day that, when Jordan got there, we all hunted, but after we put all that time in, you know, we saw three bucks on November the first, you know, each one of us saw a buck that morning and the smallest one was like 140 class, you know? So, um, you just got to cover that country and use that information that you have and just, you know, don't get so stressed out, especially on these rut trips. If you don't have information on these areas, um, don't get stressed out because you're not in a tree. Like there's no reason to, to burn a sit. It's, you know, it's better to scout than to burn a sit just to be in a tree, you know? Yeah, I agree, man. 
Well, what 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 do you th- when we talk teed this topic up? Were there, were there any pieces that you wanted to touch on that we didn't cover in the natural course of the the, the dialogue? Um, I mean, the only, I mean, people that want to hunt that way if they're not already hunting that way, one of the big things is you got to be in shape. Um, you you know, like a lot of guys are really getting into mountain hunting or like they have interest in it, but like if you've never been in the mountains and walked up some of these ridges, like if you're not in shape, it's, you're not going to have a good time. Like you're not going to get in, you're not going to cover the country you want to. And ultimately, um, if you do kill something, you may have a hard time getting it out, but you know, it would be a really fun adventure, you know, like doing all, doing all night or trying to get a buck out, but, uh, you know, put in the time, get fit for it. Um, have all the gear that you need. Like, cause I mean, you're going to be packing animals out. So you need to be prepared to do that. Um, and just, you know, have a good time doing it. Yeah, for sure. I think keeping a good attitude about it all, making sure it stays fun is important. One of the things that I did last year to do that was I picked the rifle back up and, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the areas that I had to hunt were not super suitable for bow hunting. And so as a result, uh, I found myself getting frustrated by that and, uh, they were still my best options. And so I picked up the rifle and started, you know, doing the Western thing where I would, you know, pop up over a little Ridge Hill, you know, glass down into the bottom, sit there for a little bit till I felt like, you know, I had a good pulse on the area. Nothing's moving. All right, time to move, go on to the yeah. next area. And, um, you know, that was kind of like a shot in the arm and, and it was a lot more fun that way for sure. Oh yeah, man. Like that's a, you know, another good hunt to do. Uh, I've done some solo backpack hunts, you know, just doing like point to point type stuff. And I actually have some plans to do some more this year. I didn't do any last year, but you know, going out and, you know, when you have these big tracks like that, you can turn them into like a, a Western style experience. You know, you could spend a couple of days in the backcountry with your buddies and just, you know, do a shuttle system, drop, drop a vehicle off at one area and then everybody drive back and you start this area and you just like, cover a bunch of country like you know spike camping every night like that that that's a really fun adventure that you can have and using a rifle you know is the way to do that in my opinion because uh usually it's going to be deer in the rut and you can have just a really fun backcountry experience on the east coast by you know using that type of strategy yeah, absolutely. That's something my little brother and I are talking about doing. We found a an entire swath of probably close to 5,000 acres that when we went down all the roads and we did the dance, we found that there was no tree stands, there were no trail markers, there weren't any of that stuff, and it's kind of difficult to get back in there to begin with, and then when you get in there, there's no easy way to get anything out. And, yeah. uh, we found bear, we found deer, we found Turkey, we had a blast doing it. And so like immediately it got the wheels going and Duncan and I like, okay, listen, we didn't see any kind of historical sign in this little, little bottom here. We could probably use this as a camp and not blow anything out of these bottoms. Oh, I bet you we could go over here and do the same thing. And then there's the, the Crick side over there. We could go do the same thing. And so it's one of those things where it, it very quickly is becoming one of those like, well, can't go to Colorado this year. What do you think about, uh, you know, bombing off into the national forest for seven days and, and, you know, just, you know, pinging back in periodically to check cell service if you need to climb up to the top of the mountain. But in the meantime, let's just go off the grid like we would, you know, out west. I mean, that's a it's a rare thing in the southeast. Yeah, man. I mean, it's totally doable. I mean, there's tracks in Virginia, uh, you know, West North Carolina and Georgia. You could totally make that happen. And in most of these areas, you know, since a lot of your listener base is primarily the southeast, um, 
like that's that's something that's really within reach and, and like you know i've talked about this on another podcast before it's like it's a really good like uh prerequisite for people that are wanting to go out west at least yeah. you can go and it's you know essentially it's lower commitment uh, but you can get your systems dialed as far as your camping gear and, you know, what you're going to need. And if you do get an animal down, you know, you've never butchered an animal in the field, like you can have that experience before you go tackle like an elk and, and it gets to be, you know, completely different situation because you're dealing with a bigger animal. Um, but yeah, man, it's a great adventure to have. Um, and there's tons of them. And I think the more time people do that, they, they'd really appreciate it even more, you know, Absolutely, for sure. It'd be, it'd be a great way to prepare for the Midwest, or not for the Midwest, geez. All you need is some spam and a heater, and you're okay in the Midwest. But it'd be a great way yeah. to prepare for Colorado. Everything with, you know, aside from the lack of oxygen. There's nothing I can do for you on that one. No, no. <laughs> you know, altitude affects everybody differently, man. Like, I've, I've been at altitude numerous times, and no matter how you prepare for it, Sometimes it hits you and sometimes it doesn't. That's you right. Know, I like to get true altitude sickness. Um, I've been fortunate. I only have really gotten it once, but I've, I've witnessed it a lot with some buddies. Not a fun time. That's awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you cutting out uh, an hour. We played tag a couple times there, had to try and reschedule, and I appreciate you carving time out your evening to uh, to chat with us. Why don't you kind of give everybody a reminder of where they can find everything Timber Ninja? Um, well, you can find us online at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com. That's our website. And then on social media, it's Timber Ninja, Timber Ninja Outdoors, which we're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and YouTube. We have some YouTube videos. Sorry, I just had my dog come in here. <laughs> hey, it's an outdoor podcast. It's an outdoor dog, dude. It's all good, man. Yeah. I, yeah. I, <laughs> guys, listen, if this if the the deer hunting is kicking off, you know, we're talking about the deer hunting prep, we're getting ready for it. There are all kinds of places Jason said it earlier, our main base is the southeast. There's all kinds of adventures you can go on right here in the southeast. Sure, the Midwest is always an attractive option, but we're, we're going to start diving into some southeastern content. We're going to start bringing you guys in the southeast who get it done, uh, who, where it may apply to you. I know we have a big base up in north Georgia of listeners, so you guys, this one applied directly to you. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear... Send us a message. Shoot us a DM. We'd love to have you, uh, or we'd love to have them on, and, and make sure you guys are hearing from the people you're, you're interested in hearing from. But do me a favor: no matter what you do, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby, six eight Western. A mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at seven p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.